Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. It's the Nordic country of ice and snow with a big musical footprint. Today, we kick off the Sound Opinions World Tour with a musical trip to Sweden. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. DJ Stefan Vermelin is our guide through Swedish pop history. And later in the show, we review the debut album from the Tom York-led supergroup, Adams for Peace. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that's a bit of Canadian singer-songwriter Carly Rae Jepsen, her huge hit single, Call Me Maybe, the best-selling single of 2012. 12.5 million copies sold globally. We're talking about this because there's a new report on global music sales for all of 2012. It turns out, amid much fanfare, that in 2012, for the first time in 10 years, sales numbers are up. 0.3%, which is a very small number, but still, it's going in the right direction. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the worldwide music industry is championing these numbers. The head of the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry has said that for the global music business, it's hard to remember a year that has begun with such a palpable buzz in the air. These are hard-won successes for an industry that has innovated. They show the music industry has adapted to the internet world. Well, they kind of do show that. Subscription service streaming has grown by 44%. Up 9% are digital revenues, people paying for and downloading music. That's now 34% of all music sales worldwide. You have new countries like Kenya, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam coming into the global market with legal licensing download services. Now, more level-headed, slightly skeptical observers of the industry are pointing out once again that 0.3% is a small number and that back in 1999, the last year of really big music sales numbers, worldwide sales were much larger. But we're never going to see that era of first-week sales of a 3 or $4 million for an in-sync record again. It's a thing of the past. The best people are willing to grant is that this is a new, smaller, more manageable music industry that's finally moving in the right way. One analyst said, a sustainable but smaller market built around more engaged fans. That can't be a bad thing. Today, we can enjoy our favorite music, movies, and TV shows anywhere, anytime. When people share digital files, they can violate copyright laws often without being aware that they're doing so. The Copyright Alert System is designed to help consumers understand when files may have been shared illegally on peer-to-peer -peer networks using their Internet accounts. That is the calm, disembodied, somewhat condescending voice of the Center for Copyright Information as they're rolling out a new program 
aimed at illegal peer-to-peer file sharers. So if you're illegally sharing music files with your friends, Jim, you better watch out because the Center for Copyright Information is coming after you. Mm. This is a, an organization it was designed to educate consumers about copyright and infringement, and it's got some huge corporate hitters behind it. We're talking about the Recording Industry Association of America and the Motion Picture Association of America, as well as the big internet service providers, AT&T, Cablevision, Comcast, Time Warner Cable, and Verizon. There's a lot of corporate muscle behind this group. Now, there have been various methods tried in different countries of how to deal with illegal file sharing. Some of the European countries are taking punitive measures. They're basically saying three strikes and you're out. You get three warnings, you get taken off the internet. In America, what they're trying to do with this system is less punitive, but it's pretty annoying for a lot of people who are on the Internet and may have been discovered to be sharing files. The first thing they're going to do is a temporary reduction of Internet speed after you get a couple of these warnings. Then they're going to redirect you to a landing page until the primary account holder contacts your Internet service provider. And finally, they're going to redirect you to a landing page where the primary account holder must review and respond to educational information. Uh, Let me get this straight. If I illegally share a copyrighted file with you, I may get a warning in my browser from the Internet service provider saying, you have been a bad boy. I may also have my Internet speed slowed to like the old AOL dial-up days. Mm -hmm. And finally, I have to go to the Internet version of traffic school and sit there and be lectured about how not to illegally quote-unquote, share files? Yes, you're not going to have the Recording Industry Association of America or the Center for Copyright Information showing up at your door, handcuffing you and taking you to jail. But they're going to try to annoy you to death, Jim. It's kind of like the, uh, the record industry's equivalent of Chinese water torture. Slowly but surely annoy you to the point where you're going to stop this illegal activity, or so they hope. listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and today we kick off a series we're calling the Sound Opinions World Tour. You know, Jim, it's too easy to think of pop music as something that only happens in the U.S. or maybe Britain. (laughs) And I think a lot of people sort of view it that way. We're very focused on our own backyard. But of course, rock and roll belongs to the world. So in this series, we're going to zero in on a few countries that have really put their individual stamp on global rock and pop music. Greg, the big question was where to start. You mentioned the U.S. and the U.K. When it comes to the biggest exporters of music worldwide, they're number one and number two. But right up there at number three is the land of ABBA, Max Martin, and death metal. I am talking Sweden. Here's a country that in the 50s and 60s was churning out cut-rate covers of American and English hits. But today, it's a global pop powerhouse. Swedish songwriters and producers are all over the world charts. Just look at the top 10 singles from the past few weeks. Taylor Swift's I Knew You Were Trouble, co-written and produced by Swede Max Martin. Justin Bieber's Beauty and a Beat. Of course, we have Swedish House Mafia with Don't You Worry Child. But there's quite a bit of art happening with all this commerce. Look at Robin for one example. She makes this wonderful, upbeat, danceable commercial pop that still has an independent, underground, arty edge. People always said Madonna in this country was plundering the dance underground and bringing it to the pop world. I think Robin is doing that in an even more credible way. In the last two years with these Body Talk records, part one and part two, she's produced the greatest art of her career. Now, Robin is by no means the only Swedish artist that has made us excited, Greg, in the last couple of years. I would add to this list The Knife, they worked with Robin, Jens Lekman, Little Dragon, and The Hives. And then I think you've got to look at Sweden as a worldwide center for metal music, Jim. You've got a couple of different strands of metal over there. This death metal scene with uh, bands like At The Gates, Dark Tranquility, In Flames, those growly vocals combined with very melodic guitar lines. And then you've got a very strong progressive metal scene 
One of my favorite bands out of Sweden for the last 20 years has been Opeth. They combine the death metal aggression with a more progressive, virtuosic approach to their instruments. I was asking one of the members of Opeth about why there's such a huge metal presence in Sweden. He said, you know, most of the year it's dark all day around practically. <laughs> Not to mention, and he, and, he, and he went back to the Viking era. He says, we have a tradition of this kind of grisly, long, grim history of death and decapitation. But you can't walk around the streets now in modern Sweden decapitating people, so you form a death metal band instead. <laughs> Waking up to your sound again Laughs into the ways of misery Clearly, Greg, there is no one Swedish sound. This music contains multitudes. So to help guide us through the country's transition from pop music backwater to international hub of cutting-edge sounds, we reached out to our colleague abroad. Stefan Vermelin is the host of the Swedish public radio show Vermelin. He's been exposing Swedes to new music since the 70s. Stefan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. So we mentioned that early Swedish sounds were basically copying what was coming out of the U.S. and the U.K. But how did that music get to Sweden in the first place? Some people went to the States and bought records in the harbors. They worked on a ship or something. And some people went to England and they tried to buy records from people that bought the records from sailors that came into Liverpool and Portsmouth and everything. You didn't have any blues records. Robert Johnson's greatest hits, Columbia turned it out in the 1960s, early. And that was why Robert Johnson was the main figure in Swedish and English blues at the time, because that was about the only blues record they could listen to. And in Swedish radio, we had one program that played pop records one hour a day in the 50s. And it wasn't rock and roll, like I said. And we had a film, of course, Blackboard Jungle with Rock Around the Clock. are now listening to Rock Around the Clock. This is the theme music from MGM's sensational new picture, Blackboard Jungle. Many people said the story could not, must not, dared not be shown. The picture already has the movie and book world gasping. Did they tear up the theaters in, uh, in yeah, Sweden? Yeah, yeah. So there were riots all over the world when that movie yeah, played, yeah. okay. But it sounds it's, like... hard to, it's hard to believe today, but it, it, it's the truth. I was talking about the Swedish record library, the third largest in the world. When the first rock and roll records came, they was put in a separate cabinet because they wouldn't, they didn't want to mix it up with the real records. <laughs> Don't pollute the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you go back to the '50s, '60s, and you you see examples of the Swedish answer to the Beatles, for example. Right? It, it was music appropriating what it was hearing that was hits in the early rock and roll era, and and doing kind of their own versions of it. Is that correct? Yeah. If you listen to songs from the 50s, the Swedish groups and artists, they were always trying to do something that they had stolen from the black Americans mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you ever heard that Route 66 with the Bursell twins, two twins from Stockholm. And they, they, they really don't know any English. They don't, <laughs> they don't understand what they're singing. <laughs> So it's phonetic English, but they're doing American rock and roll, basically. Yeah, because then you couldn't find the lyrics on the internet. You had to try to listen to the records and what do they say, and the record was lousy, and it's (laughs) it's hard to hear. Well, let's dig a little deeper. I'm fascinated by this prog movement, P-R-O-G-G, in the sense of progressive rock, progressive, but it was more of a political thing in Sweden, right? It was a movement, a political movement, and the progressive part was that we, the artists, they they should have their own studios, they should have their own manufacturers, and they should not just do commercial music. They were trying to make something what they wanted to do. I mean, art, real art. And it went quite good for a couple of years, and then the the politics took over more and more, and then it dropped out of sight. Hmm. So now it's it's for some it's a kind of a cuss word 
to say prog in Sweden. And then we had the English progressive rock, which was a totally another thing. But we had a lot of good groups that made prog rock. Who were some of them that stood up from that period? The Hula Bandula Band is one of the best. <laughs> you got to love that name. That's great. Now, yeah, I've never but, heard that. Do, do you know what it is? <laughs> no, it's, it's American. If you listen to the Donald Duck cartoon where he has a picnic with ants, and then the ants <laughs> talk to each other and they say, Hula Bandula, Hula Bandula. Hula Hula. But the song that you, you could play, the Vem Kan Man Lita På, Who Can You Trust? It's a very good lyric. And it's a very Bob Dylan-esque, of course. Like everything is Bob Dylan yeah. about that time. Anyone with a guitar would try to emulate Bob Dylan. And this is the early 70s we're talking about, right? Yeah. This, this kind yeah. of flowering of this the, the, this psychedelic movement combined with the folk and and the political bent. But, but uh, you know, the, Greg, the politics and the DIY aesthetic that Stefan was talking about, it, it seems yeah. like it's a little bit, it's as much punk as it is mm. hippie. Yeah. We consider, we are in the alternative music movement, that we call it, we were very proud of the punk movement because we thought that they were our, our mean sons and daughters. Of course, they didn't like us. So it's <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the greatest Swedish punk band? Uh, Imperiet and uh, Ebba Grön. Mm. If you should listen to Staten och Kapitalet, the state and the capital. It's a magnificent song from the Prague era, and they made a punk version of it that is simply magnificent. It's cracking. that they were rebelling against? Was it something going on in the government culturally that was inspiring this strain of music? It started with the Vietnam War, mostly, and the French uh, 68 revolution, more, more or less. Mm. But the Vietnam War, it, it attracted a lot of people tried to stop that war in Vietnam. Out of that, it grew out all this, this movement that we should try to do things our way, we should try to stop war. But that was kind of a start to the whole thing. And it kind of blossomed for a couple of years. It was quite good. It was a fun thing to be part of. You had this hardcore, punk, underground, leftist music scene going on at the same time that ABBA was coming into full flower. Obviously, ABBA won the commercial battle, it sounds like. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) No? Of course they did. Yeah. I mean, if you think back to the Swedish 60s, you had Benny Andersson. He played in the Hepstars, one of the greatest and best Swedish bands from the 60s. Björn Alves, he played in in Houghton and the Singers. It's kind of a Kingston trio, singing American folk songs and Swedish folk songs. And then they met together. You have that, hey, gamle man, hello, old man, song there. It was the first time they were together with the two girls in the choir. Guess who, who those girls are? Men trots att han har stått där nu I alla dessa år Så verkar det på honom Som han kommit dit igår Hej gamle man, kan du visa oss den väg som vi ska So we got the members of ABBA before they were ABBA. Yeah. But if you listen to that song and compare it to Waterloo, you will find it's a kind of big difference in the sound and the attitude. And when those guys, all kind of uh, domestic, nice, everybody's loving them, old ladies and everything, and then you see them on stage in the uh, ABBA costumes, it's, it's a laugh. And then later you understood that it was very good music they did. When we return, a defense of ABBA. Swedish DJ Stefan Vermelen explains how Swedish pop went global. And later, we review the debut of Adams for Peace from Radiohead frontman Tom York. 
That's in a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and today we're getting a lesson in Swedish pop history from Stefan Vermelen, longtime host of the music show Vermelen on Swedish Public Radio. And we've been talking to him about Swedish music leading up to the ABBA explosion, and that, of course, is a little bit of ABBA's Mama Mia, a song that at one time you could not escape on commercial radio. Throughout the 50s and 60s, Swedish groups had been trying unsuccessfully to break overseas, and ABBA was the country's first wildly successful musical export, but it wasn't the last. Later on, we had groups like Roxette and the Cardigans following on the charts, and today we've got a new wave of Swedish indie acts getting the kind of critical acclaim that groups like ABBA and Roxette never got. I'm talking about artists like Peter Bjorn and John, Robin, Jose Gonzalez, and Lickia Lee. In some ways, Greg, I think we've come full circle. ABBA has found a whole new generation of fans here in the U.S. The hipsters like them. The soccer moms and minivans like them. They're a big hit on Broadway. Stefan, is this the same case in Sweden? How do Swedes regard ABBA today? We're proud of ABBA. Now, we haven't always been, but it, but now we are because they brought out the Swedish name and they're now a household name in all over the world. You can hear ABBA. Yeah? Pe- people love them and it's resonated culturally. I think ABBA is kind of like Sweden's Elvis. You just say those four letters and people instantly know what you're talking about. And at the same time, we had John Savage, the British uh, music critic, on the show a few months ago talking about the rise of punk in the UK. And he says one of the main reasons punk rock rose in England was because of Fernando, I believe, was the ABBA song. People just had to rebel against that They needed yeah. some antidote to this saccharine, or what was perceived as incredibly saccharine pop music at the time. And I'm wondering, was there that sort of faction in Sweden where there was people who clearly saw this as manufactured music, especially coming against the prog movement that you were describing? We have a, one of the prog bands made a song that's called Doing the Umoralisk Schlagerfestival, Doing the Unmoral Eurovision Song Contest. And it's about ABBA. They come in clothes that are plastic and they, they don't care about a thing. And <laughs> Fernando is one of the worst songs ever made. It's not their I best must, day. I must say, it's I must not say. not their best moment, no. <laughs> no. There was something.
So ABBA was Sweden's musical ambassador to the world. But is there anything that identifies their music as particularly Swedish? I think when I listen to ABBA, I hear more of uh, the Tamla Motown, uh, Phil Spector sound that Mikael Tretov created, the producer for ABBA. Mm. It's more like they have tried to steal everything or lend everything from the great guys before. The same thing with Roxette. Per Gessle is an expert in taking small fragments of popular music and create something completely new out of it. So it's a pastiche. Hmm. Yeah, exa- exactly. But it, it's kind of hard to say a sound because I live right in the middle of the Swedish sounds and there are too many, really. Before, in the 60s, in the 70s, I could hear if a song was from England or from United States or from Sweden. It was no problem. You could hear directly that that is an English group. It's no mistaking that. But now everybody's doing the same thing and it's kind of hard to separate them. Hmm. Now, you have to explain, because I think a lot of Americans from that era, their first exposure to Swedish pop music was not ABBA, but this group, Blue Swede, yeah. with Hooked on a Feeling, a yeah. big hit, I think, in 1974. Yeah. Still, to this day, I think one of the strangest songs that ever went top 40 <laughs> in the U.S. <laughs> Stefan, what was up it with was, that? It was number one. I can't stop this feeling. Deep inside of me Girl, you just don't realize What you do to me When you hold me In your arms so tight You let me know Everything's alright Björn Schiffs, who was singing in Blue Blues, as they were called in Swedish, uh, Blue Swede, he was one of the most popular singers from the 60s, one of the few that could sing in those electric rock bands from the 60s. And he made that hit and got a good producing and everything. And it just took off. Nobody understood really why it did. <laughs> but Björn Schiffs is still singing, he's still active, and it's a, he's a good actor, he's, a, he's a good on stage and everything. But I, I didn't think he has never had really good material. He's much better than his songs. Groups like ABBA, one-hit wonders like Blue Swede, these are the bands that opened the door, showing that Swedish groups could have big hits in the U.S., and a lot of them did. Talk about Ace of Bass. Those who really listen to music like I do and my comrades, we, we didn't like Ace of Bass. But it became a great hit in all over Europe and in the States and everything. And the, the new thing about hits in the States was now that it did, didn't take so long. I mean, ABBA was quite late to break in the States and Ace of Bass took off quite immediately because the Atlantic has become a lot of more shallow. I mean, in the 50s, if you wanted to buy an American record, you had to wait for two years or something, or one mm, year mm, at mm. least. Ace of Base was a typical product of the new thinking that we, we are doing this to get as big a hit as possible. got ABBA, then Roxette, then Ace of Bass, and then you've, you've got this incredible hit factory. It reminds me a little bit of what was going on in Sweden with people like Max Martin and Martin Carl Sandberg and Johan Carl Schuster and Rami Jakob, Dennis Pop. You had this almost brill-building kind of yeah, yeah, system exactly. of creating pop records. And yeah. when did that really start to emerge? That was in the beginning of the 90s, in the end of the 80s. They had a Sharon Studios that made all those hits. And in the beginning, it was not so easy to get it up because they had to first make their mark so that everybody would be interested. They must have a hit and then everybody else want to make hit. Exactly like I said, like the Brill Building or Tin Pan Alley and things. And they, had a, they found out the system to make a song. You nearly always start with a commercial bit in the song. It's not like before when they started with a long intro and then came the song. Mm. This, they start with the refrain and the, the, the heavy stuff, and then they go on. They hit you with a the chorus right off the yeah. top, right? Yeah. yeah. 
which was a Beatles trick as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just knock you over the head with that with that melody, and then they keep coming la, back. La, 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 la. <laughs> You said it eloquently earlier. Two factors in making the Swedish pop factory succeed. Number one, that unerring ear for the hook. And it was wide-ranging. They listen far and wide and, and come up with a pastiche, whether it's from R&B or yeah. hip-hop or rock or the underground. And then the technical perfectionism. Yeah. Mastering the computers, being among the first people to master the electronic production. That's the secret. Yeah, I think so. I think that Swedish guys, producers and the songwriters, they found out about a new technique that came in the 90s. Many other people didn't want to use that you know, all the computer-based music and things like that. But uh, there are a lot of guys in Sweden that really are into that stuff. They could make their own records, they could have their own studios, they could produce and do things, and they found that there's a whole lot of money out there. And what about culture, Stefan? Is there something particular about the way that Swedish society runs that has fostered music? Yeah, because we have a lot of education in this uh, uh, the state's music school, and you can get an education and learn to play cello or electric guitar or drums or anything. But the problem is that they always try to turn them into jazz musicians. <laughs> <laughs> and and are there grants and such for, for young bands that are starting yeah, out? Or? Yeah, we have a lot of organizations and like those that take, they take the royalties and the, when we play things on the radio. We've always been trying to see to it that people get paid for their music because... If you create a song, of course, you should have royalties. Let's dive into the underground, Stefan. Uh, Swedish metal. Mm. I mean, there's different factions of metal in Sweden, obviously. You've got that melodic death metal scene that people in America talk about. You've also got the more progressive end with bands like Opeth and Meshuga. How do people talk about this stuff in Sweden? If you're a hardcore fan of metal music, then you have your genre. I listen to black metal. I listen to cough music. You know, <laughs> right, all, right. I mean, uh, my daughter, the teacher in the school, asked her what they were listening to music when they were 16 years old. And one of her classmates said, it. I got a very broad taste. He said, I listen to both speed metal and trash. But the big market is, of course, outside of Sweden, because Sweden is kind of a small country. They're very big in Germany and Spain and France and Japan, of course. Everything is big in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In addition, you've got this amazing underground scene. So many cool little underground bands that have risen to, you know, a level of popularity. But what is the club scene like? for a young band in Sweden? If you're a small band coming from a small town, you don't have too many success. You have to move to Stockholm or Gothenburg or anything because to have a, to have a bigger audience and a bigger place to turn around. I mean, we have a band called Sahara Hot Nights, a female group, very good, extremely good. And they come from a small village up in the north, Robert Schforsen. They can't break in Robert Forge. They have to come to Stockholm to play and be seen. Otherwise, they won't be heard of by anyone. What one act would you recommend right now that people should be looking at coming out of Sweden that people say maybe might not know about in the United States right now? A ghost, that heavy metal band, a metal band, I think it's, they're making a kind of a special kind of music that I really like. It's a hard and heavy with marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs>
have a kind of a poop hat on the head. Looks very strange. <laughs> it's kind of hard because they always try to remain mystic. Nobody should know who they are. It's the, the, the metal scene, but it's not all that brutal. It's not goth rock, and they sing in the way that you should sing in the scene. But it kind of like it because, it, I mean, I, I'm brought up with Led Zeppelin and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and things like that. So I don't, I'm not scared about <laughs> metal music. It's it's only rock and roll, but it's a bit faster and a bit heavier. So Ghost is one recommendation. Um, what's another group you can recommend for us? First aid kit, uh, they're starting to get really big now, I would yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, they're starting to get some recognition over here, definitely. Who are they, for people who don't know Two yet? girls, two girls. Uh, Johanna Söderberg and Söderberg, Clara Söderberg. Two sisters, they're making kind of a naive, mild pop music, good lyrics, and they were on the show on television the other day, and then they wrapped Bob Dylan, and I think it was very mm-hmm. good. <laughs> Johnny's in the basement, kissing up the medicine, I'm on the pavement. Think about the government, the man in the trench coat, bad job laid off. Says he's got a bad cop, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, there's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it. They look um, kind of natural and they look very safe on stage. They're really a nice pair of young girls. There is hope in the coming generation. <laughs> you know, and I've noticed some similarities to some Emmylou Harris references there. People are picking up on, on some of these kind of influences. Graham Parsons, yeah. you know, that, that sort of filtering into some of the music. Absolutely, absolutely. Because they can do nearly everything. They do dance music and they do rock and they do uh, troubadour stuff and everything. And they even have a song called Emmylou. I mean, Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers is still a, a very talkative subject in Sweden. When, when I meet 18-year-old kids on a party or somewhere else, they always wanted to talk about Graham Parsons. Now remind me, you sent us one last name, right? Andy... Andy Almquist. He's making kind of Americana music and writing very black stories about the hard life Wills Hills lived in Poland or in Paris. and It's it's quite typical for the kind of uh, songs that you write when you're trying to make blues country... But he's got a good feeling about it. He, he's, he's making quite good because we got a lot of people in Sweden singing country and you know how country can sound when country is bad it sounds not so funny yeah, yeah. but when it's good it's it's Graham Parsons so it sounds like you're saying he's a Swedish Jeff Tweedy of Wilco yeah yeah exactly okay. Greg's all That's excited very good. now yeah. Greg's very excited <laughs> Jenny made a deal with the Lord of Flies Jenny made a deal with the Lord of Flies and she bled she didn't like school, never learned a spell. She drowned stray cats in the wishing well, and the snakes in the grass cried. Low dive, Jenny. This has been great stuff. We've been talking to Stefan Vermelen of Swedish Public Radio. He's been our guest on Sound Opinions. Stefan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And when we come back, Tom York and Flea pair up for the experimental supergroup Adams for Peace, and Greg drops a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. But first, we want to hear from you. What are your favorite Swedish bands, and how do you define their sound? And what country should we visit next? 
on the Sound Opinions World Tour. Talk about that or anything else on your musical mind at 888-859-1800. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that voice, of course, belongs to Tom York, the leader of Radiohead. It's a song called Default, the first single from the new group Adams for Peace. The album's called Amok. It's a new group. This is their debut album. But the story actually goes back to 2009 when Tom York released his first solo album, The Eraser. He did some gigs to support that record, which he'd recorded all on his own. It was his voice, his piano, his synthesizer, his electronic fun time in the studio. But what a band he put together to back him up. You have Flea on bass of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You had Joey Warrenker, best known for playing with Beck and R.E.M. on drums. Radiohead's producer, longtime collaborator with York, Nigel Godrich on keyboard and synths, and a Brazilian percussionist, Mauro Rafasco. Apparently, those gigs went so well that this became an actual band. And York and everybody else involved in the project is making the point of saying this isn't a second York solo album. This is the first album from Adams for Peace. Because I am a history fan, I have to note that that phrase comes from the 1953 speech by President Eisenhower, who was excoriating nuclear proliferation. And you'll notice on the cover of this record, there is a phrase in Cornish that translates to nuclear power, no thanks. Tom York, always an activist, always a very interesting artist. Let's hear a song from this album, and we'll come back and we'll give our opinions. This is Adams for Peace with Judge jury and executioner on sound opinions.
That's judge, jury, and executioner from the new Adams for Peace album, Amok. Uh, Tom York took this band on the road in 2009-2010 for his Eraser solo album, Jim. And i got to say it was a revelation because those Eraser songs uh, sounded very claustrophobic and insular. And then they really blossomed on stage with this band. And I wish he'd recorded that tour because I think it would have made an excellent album. He just completely reinvented those songs. I think the process of reinvention goes on for York. This is an incredible, technically accomplished record in one aspect. Basically, what he did was he, he put this band in the studio. They jammed out some songs, some arrangements. And then afterward, the, the editing process, the mixing process, is where the real studio art came in. It reminds me of the way Teo Machero and Miles Davis concocted records like In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew 40 years ago. Technically, Sounds fantastic. What I am missing is those songs really flourishing. They seem, again, a little constricted. The the rhythms are wonderful, and York's voice is sort of floating disembodied above them, but there's nothing that really resonates for me with one or two exceptions as real songs on this record. And again, I feel it's a project that he's going to have to take on the road to figure out the full measure of what he's done and for us to appreciate the full measure of what he's done. It's a burn-it record for me. Greg, I don't know if it's because my enthusiasm is relatively new or I've just finally seen the light. As I said when we reviewed The Eraser, that was my breakthrough moment. I finally started to to learn how to love Tom York and stop worrying about that weird voice. I can still relate to people thinking that it is a very slippery and alienating voice. But I think I was looking for songs because, you know, Creep I had liked when it came out a million years ago. And I finally have realized that you have to listen to York, and to Radiohead in large part, like you would an Eno ambient record. I'm sorry, Uh-oh. sound the alarm, <laughs> Ding. but it's true. You know, and people are always saying that it's it's York trying to be the bit of humanity in the midst of the machine in this digital age, and I actually think it's the other way around. I think that, that he's a very human person who is trying to imitate machines, uh, the best part of them, and what you have here is an incredible collection of musicians working together, like you said, in a jazz fusion way, imitating mechanical sounds, but there is still is that soul there because they're human beings, if that makes any sense. Anyway, if I don't get hung up on the fact that Tom's enduring view of the world is a very dour one, he made his bed, he's going to lie at it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just listened to this as, as this kind of background trance music. I really, really enjoy it. So I would say that this is a buy it record. I loved Eraser, and I, I very much like this album too. Buy it from me, burn it from you. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. That music reminds you that as often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play you a track that we cannot live without. Greg, you've been stuck on the island for quite some time, like Tom Hanks and Castaway talking to the volleyball. What have you got for us? Well, Jim, I just mentioned Miles Davis in relationship to this Tom York Adams for Peace record, and Miles has been on my mind lately. I've been listening to a lot of his music. His wife, his former wife, Betty Davis herself, made some brilliant records while she was married to Miles and afterward as well. In 1973, her debut record appeared, self-titled record, an accomplished blues vocalist. She'd been known primarily as a songwriter for artists like the Commodores and the Chamber Brothers. One thing people may not realize, not only was she a great songwriter, but she self-produced many of her records and basically played all the parts for the musicians. She hummed the lines to each musician and said, this is what I want. So she was a true multi-talented producer and artist in her own right. I went to Minneapolis to interview Prince a few months ago, and we started talking about Betty Davis, and he said, I want to play you this track because this is the song that I play for inspiration whenever I'm working with a new artist. He, he will say to that new artist, this is what we're going for. Mm. And it, it's the lead-off track off that Betty Davis debut album. It's a song called If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up. Suggestive lyrics, explicit songs all over this record, sarcasm, raunch, you know, the gender-bending qualities in the voice. You know, she, it's a raspy, nasty, growly, 
openly lusting for her partner kind of voice. Don't you crush my velvet. Don't you ruffle my feathers. Neither. She's singing in this song. The musicians in this band were uh, members of Santana, Sly and the Family Stone. Larry Graham was on bass. Mm. I mean, you got some monster players. Santana was a huge admirer of Betty Davis. He's, he said, this is Black Panther funk. This was a, ahead of its time. He said, she was the first Madonna, but Madonna is more like Marie Osmond compared to Betty Davis. <laughs> Here's a little taste of Betty Davis. If I'm in luck, I might get picked up from 1973 on Sound Opinions. Betty Davis with If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox Pick this week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit and performance from Lucinda Williams. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, who thinks that Swedish music is that stuff they play at Ikea. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Dave calling from Cleveland. While I think there's a lot of buried treasure here in Cleveland, the band I'm really digging right now is called Dead Sweaters. They've got uh, 
boisterous guitars, a lot of energy, male and female vocals with great interplay, and they are high energy and a lot of fun. them at a uh, winter festival in a back alley stage 18 degrees and snowing everybody was digging the band and when they were done they were screaming for more thanks hi this is garrett walker from houston texas i have a great recommendation and a buried treasure i haven't heard mentioned on your show but that is future islands from their album on the water it is great dark brooding lyric and heavy it's amazing Hi guys, this is Claire Zolke calling from Chicago, and I just wanted to thank you for the Jimmy Cliff show. He's got a special place in my heart, because when I was in high school, one of the deans would play You Can Get It If You Really Want once a week over the loudspeakers between periods, which was just a great way to get the week started. You can get it if you really Succeed at last. Good morning. I'm Dr. Wilson. I'm living in the U.S. at the moment, and I'm responding to the piece on Jimmy Cliff. Jimmy, in my opinion, is sensational, to say the least. However, compared to Bob Marley, I wish to point out that Jimmy Cliff the entertainer continues to appeal to a wide and diversified audience. But his lyrics are distant and often too far removed from the current and prevailing Jamaican experience. Marley, on the other hand, I think embodied and reflected the daily social and economic struggles of our people. Marley was never out of touch. He was the voice of the poor, oppressed, and the marginalized. Thank you very much. Why do they fight against the poor youth of today? And without this they would be gone, all gone astray. Hey, Sound Opinions. This is uh, Bill down in South Florida. Just finished listening to your Jimmy Cliff show, and I had to laugh because you asked about how people discovered reggae, and I discovered reggae exactly how you described. I'm a fraternity brother who was very white with Bob Marley posters all over his wall, and the best of Bob Marley playing on the stereo. I'm happy to say I've expanded my horizon since. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.